You're listening to Tell It from Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, where we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. For upcoming events and services, visit our website at cbcnyc.org. And now, here's today's message. You know, this is a, I heard an ordination sermon uh, once where the preacher, not my ordination, someone else's, where the preacher spoke from Hebrews about how it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, who's a consuming fire. Uh, pastoral ministry is a, is a sacred task, and uh, we give account to God for the souls of people. Um, so we come with fear and trembling, but I was encouraged, even as the psalmist was when he entered the house of the Lord, he was encouraged uh, I was encouraged when I entered the house of the Lord through the prayer meeting of the saints. Because when we pray, the Lord is with us. And we enter into the throne, of, throne room of His grace. So uh, on Wednesday nights, there are about 35 to 40 people who gather to pray. Uh, most of them, uh, uh, the mothers, the ladies of this church, our sisters. And just about everyone who prayed, prayed for me. For me, more than anything else in the last couple of weeks... That was a great encouragement that uh, I can serve because people pray. Uh, and I would encourage you to join at that prayer meeting. Uh, it's it's, it's on, on Zoom and phone call. If you even have a rotary, not a rotary phone, even your regular phone, you can, uh, you can call in uh, and join us because uh, that's the front lines of our uh, ministry, of our engaging the city and impacting the world is on our knees before God. Because if he does not act, uh, all our acting would be in vain. Uh, so thank you for all those who have prayed for me. And uh, as Tom said, continue to pray for me. I need that. Um, I also thank you for, uh, I thank the leaders of our church, the elders, deacons, pastors, our office staff, who have uh, made me feel welcome, who have, uh, uh, it's so encouraging that I'm not alone, that I stand with uh, a team of brothers and sisters who together uh, help in leading this uh, body. Thank you for uh, Brother David Morales who set up my office. So I spent more hours in my office than at Hepzibah House where I was staying because the office was so much more comfortable. Uh, <laughs> so, but now that I have an apartment, I may spend a little more time there as well. Speaking of my apartment, there are so many who helped me as well. Jenny uh, and uh, William work. Thank you for your hospitality and Jenny for driving me from Hepzibah House to uh, the apartment Roosevelt Island with all that snow on the ground. Uh, thank you for John and Kara Curtis who helped me find the apartment and uh, Todd and Sharon Williams who showed up on day one. Uh, they, they were the people who helped me with the housewarming, with showing up with cleaning supplies. Uh, thank you. So many of you have helped us in so many different ways uh, and it's a privilege for me to be with you. So I, I've had the privilege of ministering God's word to you uh, many times before. I've, come, I've preached here as an intern uh, when I was in seminary I preached several times as one of your missionaries, and the last two times I preached was as a candidate for your uh, senior pastor, although the first time you didn't know that I was that. Uh, <laughs> uh, the committee kept it a good secret. But, uh, but now I, for the first time, minister the, uh, God's word to you as your uh, pastor. As I said, uh, this is a sacred task, and I have adopted the word of God through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. 1 to 7, 
that's my mandate for the preaching ministry that God has entrusted to me through your call to be your pastor. I do have to warn you that preaching as a pastor is a little different from preaching as a guest speaker of whatever kind. You know, the guest speaker is like an interior uh, decorator, you know. They come and add a, a useful and aesthetically pleasing piece here and there to an existing uh, structure. The preaching pastor, on the other hand, is like a construction worker. Nothing glamorous about that, JC. Is that <laughs> uh, this is plain hard work of building a structure starting from the foundation. Uh, this morning, I begin that work of laying the foundation for my preaching ministry with you uh, with this first series called The Stories That Form Us. This foundation is necessary to build the structure of expository preaching that will follow starting uh, from March. Uh, it is this foundational series that gives the framework and the context uh, for the preaching of the Word. Now with that uh, uh, fine print taken care of, uh, before we go to the sermon itself, let's go to the Lord in prayer. But I also want to welcome uh, our brothers and sisters who are joining us online. I know many of our uh, members are online, our uh, regular attendees are online. If you're local, uh, we would love for you to come here. This is a safe place, as, we've been, as you've been told repeatedly. Uh, come and join us. We would love to see you there. Uh, if you are from somewhere else, I think some of my former students from the Philippines are joining. Shout out to you all. Uh, <laughs> hope you would join us regularly. Uh, you are part of this congregation as, the do the, as much as the, the doors on West 123 uh, or when 123 West 57th Street was open to all who would come, uh, so also our live streaming is open to all who would come, and the Lord has brought you here. Uh, we pray that the Lord will meet you where you are and uh, show himself as God and Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, um, we thank you for the privilege of hearing your word read and preached. Uh, Father, uh, your word tells us that without your spirit at work in us, uh, we do not have the capacity in ourselves to receive, understand, and obey your word. But we pray, Lord, uh, and thank you that it is your intent that we not only hear your word, that we obey it, uh, so that we may live as witnesses for Jesus Christ. So have your way with us this morning. Speak to us from your word through your spirit. May it be for your glory and encourage and equip us to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus in engaging our city and impacting the world. We ask in his precious name. Amen. So the stories, uh, I have a clicker, but I often, you know, I can't talk and click at the same time. So thankfully there's someone here who will do. Georgie, thank you. Uh, why, why stories? Right? Uh, there's more to stories than just mere bedtime entertainment, pandemic, time pass. Uh, stories have been formative of people uh, from the beginning of time, and it still continues today. Every person is formed by some story or the other. The, the only question is, what is the story that, has, that forms you and me? Growing up in India, uh, there were temples on every street, and there's a season of the year when all these temples will have all-night storytelling events from their, from their epic tales, because it is necessary for their people to hear those stories, to, to know who they are, and uh, how they ought to live. Uh, it's not just pagans and uh, unbelievers who have stories. God's people in the Old Testament had stories to tell. The, the, God tells his people in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20 and following, when your son asks you in time to come, 
what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if you are careful to do all the commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Week, uh, year after year, whether it's the Passover or the other festivals, they all reminded them of the stories of their God, God of their father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who brought them out of slavery in Egypt, who brought them into the promised land, their God who is the creator of all things. These are the stories that formed them as a people. So whether they were sitting down or standing up or going out or coming in, they were to tell these stories to, so that every generation may know who they are. It's not just the scriptures or unbelievers or believers of other faiths who have stories. Every nation has a story of its own. We have the story of the American dream that anyone, if you can't make it here, you can't make it anywhere, not just true of New York City, but also of America. But what we are discuss, discovering is there are more than one ways of telling America's story, and uh, not all of them are good. Right? And we see the conflict rising amongst us because of that, because we see that there are st hidden stories, uh, not so well-known stories as well. And these stories have formed people. But as Christians... There are stories that form us. And I'm beginning my ministry, my preaching ministry with Calvary by helping us to remember the foundational stories that form us as God's people, the people uh, who are united to his son Jesus, the people who are, uh, are adopted by him as his children. These stories are the context not only for preaching the word, but also the way uh, of how we ought to live. They provide the framework for understanding our God, our world, ourselves, and how we ought to live. So this morning we begin, we look at the story of Scripture. All of Scripture tells one story, the story of creation, fall, redemption, and the renewal of all things. But the story of Scripture is the story of God. So the second sermon asks and answers the question, who is our God? As Scripture itself says, there are many so-called gods and lords in this world, but who is our God? I always ask my students, uh, some of them are online, they will know this. What if I wake you, in the, wake you up in the middle of the night and ask you, who is your God? What, how would you answer that question? It's important how we answer that question. Our life depends on that. So the second one, we're looking at who is our God, story of our God. We don't get to make up our own God. God has revealed himself as one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is this one God who is the creator Redeemer, and the one who will renew all things. And thirdly, we look at our collective story as the church, the body of Christ. What is the church? Who are we? Why are we here? It is essential that we know this story of who we are as the church. Otherwise, we are at risk of mission drift. We run after all kinds of things, which are not what we are to be engaged in as our primary mission in this world. If we do not know who we are as the church and why God has placed us here, uh, we fail 
uh, to be the church, and we're just another socio-political, cultural institution uh, that maybe, in some people's opinion, has lived beyond its times. Finally, the fourth one is to look at ourselves, our story, as individuals in relationship with one another, brothers and sisters, children of God, who created this universe and will make all things new. So this foundational series lays the groundwork and the context for in, in which all of Scripture must be read, understood, preached. Uh, it's only when we un- read Scripture in light of these stories, we, we know what God intends to convey through His Word, and, and we are able to understand it. So this morning, we begin with a story of Scripture. But why? Why do we need to begin there? Why tell the story of Scripture? Don't you all know that already? You know, the Bible remains the best-selling book of all time. But yet, uh, biblical illiteracy is at its highest ever. Lots of people have it, uh, but not many read it. But even those who read it, like believers, uh, we are familiar with many stories and passages in the Bible, uh, but to us, quite often, the Bible has become an anthology, an anthology of uh, stories, uh, favorite passages, or worse, favorite verses. You know, each story, uh, each story, each passage and text uh, becomes, becomes isolated from its context and begins to enjoy a life of its own, a life that it was never meant to have. Um, the proliferation of bad theology and even bad behavior among Christians today is a result of misunderstanding uh, the, of a misunderstanding that arises from fragmenting the scripture into standalone stories, passages, and verses. Uh, the danger of a fragmented Bible is downright lethal. Uh, Bartholomew and Goheen, in their book, The Drama of Scripture, hopefully someday we will do it together as a small group so we all have more time to discuss this, uh, alert us to this danger. They write, if we allow the Bible to become fragmented, it is in danger of being absorbed into whatever other story is shaping our culture. And it will thus cease to shape our lives as it should. Idolatry has twisted the dominant cultural story of the secular Western world. If as believers we allow this story, rather than the Bible, to become the foundation of our thought and action, then our lives will manifest not the truths of Scripture, but the lies of an idolatrous culture. Hence, the unity of Scripture is no minor matter. A fragmented Bible may all actually produce theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious idol worshippers. That's the risk, my brothers and sisters, of fragmenting the Bible into isolated stories and passages and verses. So what is the Bible, and how is it to be understood? Is the Bible a collection of books? Yes. If you turn to the table of contents, there are 66 books listed there. So yes, there are, it's a collection of books. Is the Bible a work of uh, multiple authors? Yes. We know uh, there are nearly 40 authors, depending on how you count, uh, over nearly, who wrote over a period of nearly 2,000 years. Are there many stories in the Bible? Yes, and we know uh, and are familiar with many of them from the narrative sections of Scripture. From, we know about Adam 
and Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph, uh, Moses and David and our Lord Jesus and, and Peter and Paul and so many more. There's a narrative section, but do you know that even in the non-narrative sections like uh, poetry and uh, pro the prophetic literature, uh, even the epistles tell stories. Uh, you read the Psalms where the, where the psalmist was doing well. Life was rightly oriented with God and there's this great disorientation and he's like, God, how, how can this happen to me? Uh, why am I going through this? And we hear the story of God reorienting him uh, to that understanding of the sovereignty of God even in the midst of his uh, troubles. Uh, the epistles are written to communities living life together uh, and, and the problems that rise from living life together. So to know those stories uh, from, to, from which the problems arise and, and that to which scripture uh, speaks. There's, so the, the, even the epistles tell stories. The souls of the prophets, the prophets tell the stories of a, a nation called by God and other nations uh, that are uh, living in, um, in rebellion against God and how God's own people are not living according to their calling and the prophets are calling the people uh, to the, back to the story to which they belong and to live life in light of that story. So the Bible is a book of, a book of many books. It's a book of many authors and it's a book that has many stories but is the Bible also one book? Yes. From cover to cover the Bible tells one story from creation to fall to God's great redemption story that extends all the way even from the fall in Genesis 3 and God's ultimate renewal of all things as we see in the book of Revelation. But how, why is it one book when there are so many authors? Because the Bible is the work of one author, the divine author, God who gave his word. That's the Bible's claim concerning itself. All of scripture is breathed out by God, is what Paul writes to Timothy. And that's primarily speaking of the Old Testament. But uh, other scriptures, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, for example, uh, and 2 Peter 3, 16, uh, speak of even the, the New Testament writers, the apostles, as speaking uh, or writing what God intended for them to write. And all is God's work, the work of God's spirit. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Scripture comes from God, the Spirit, and all Scripture points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself claims that. John chapter 5, he says that they searched the Scriptures not knowing that all Scripture points to him. In Luke chapter 24, we know the story of those two disciples who were walking back from uh, Jerusalem, disappointed that uh, uh, the one that they had followed had ended up died, and now some women were even claiming that uh, that they uh, that they had seen the one they saw dead. Uh, they knew all the facts, but they couldn't put them together. And Jesus walks along with them and interprets the scripture for them. In Luke chapter twenty-four, verse twenty-seven, we read, "And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in the scriptures all the things concerning himself." He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All scripture points to Jesus. So one book, one author, our triune God, uh, Father through the Spirit, pointing to his Son. 
And all of scripture tells one story. Yes, here's where the blame lies for the current misunderstanding and misinterpretation of scripture even among Christians. We've lost sight of the fact that all of scripture, all of 66 books by 40 authors over two, written over 2,000 years come together to tell one story because the Bible is also the work of one author, God, who has revealed himself and his works through his word. The wonderful story of scripture is the story of God who creates, redeems, and renews his creation. The story told in 66 books in two testaments points to one person, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Old Testament points and promises to God's Messiah who was to come. The New Testament proclaims Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Scripture insists that it be read as one story. We see several summaries of Scripture uh, where it brings uh, together from creation onward. I'll just look at one Old Testament example and one New Testament example. In Nehemiah chapter 9, when was the last time you read Nehemiah? Uh, we have a building project going on. I'll talk about that later. That has nothing to do with Nehemiah. But in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6 onwards, he begins from creation. You are the Lord. You alone. You made heaven. Uh, the heaven of heavens and all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham, uh, Abram and brought him out of the earth of the Chaldeans. He, he goes on to talk about uh, not only the, the, the history of creation, but the history of the calling of uh, the, the, the patriarchs and so on, uh, a summary of scripture. We see that in the New Testament as well. We all know that... Uh, uh, the story of Stephen, where he, he sums up the story of Israel uh, to speak of uh, who Christ is, even as the scripture themselves uh, proclaim. But we also see in Acts chapter 13, uh, Paul's summary. He says, brothers, son of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, uh, to us has been sent the message of the salvation. And he goes through the history of Israel all the way up to uh, verse 41, even pointing to uh, Jesus and, uh, and, and, and what Jesus is going to do when he returns. Scripture demands that it be read as one story. Uh, scripture does not allow us to fragment the story, but yet we do. So the one story of Scripture is the context for every story, every passage, every verse in Scripture. Unless we place any text of Scripture in its proper context, in the big story of Scripture, we are bound to misinterpret and misunderstand the text. Moreover, this is a story in which we find ourselves. It is written, but all that is written is not completed, and our story is in that story. We need to know the story if we are to know who we are and how we are to live in this world. Brothers and sisters, uh, we live in a world of competing narratives that seek to form us. The narrative of consumerism says, I buy, therefore I am. Right? Shopping down Fifth Avenue, you know, that's how I establish my personhood. Uh, the narrative of nationalism says, I am privileged and exceptional because I am from such and such nation. The narrative of materialism says, I am nothing more than another animal on the planet. 
which story you know and believe matters. Uh, this morning, we will see an overview of the story that forms us, that truly forms us, the true story of the whole world, the story of Scripture. We, are cons uh, we will see that that story consists of four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. The story of Scripture begins in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. There's a reason why Genesis 1 and 2 are there at the beginning of Scripture, because everything that follows, all the way up to Revelation 21-22, has to be read in light of Genesis 1 and 2. It is important. That's why we face the challenge of, is that true? Is that really happening? Genesis 1 and 2, if we lose it over there, the rest of it doesn't matter. Right? And Genesis 1 and 2 tells us there's one God who is creator of all things. And even hidden there is the understanding that this one God exists in three persons. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. God spoke by the Word of God. All that was made has been made. There's the Word, there's the Spirit, and there's the God who creates all things. All things are created by Him and all things are good. Uh, as Creator, He is the sovereign Lord of creation. He made all things. He has the say over uh, what his creation is, where it is headed, and he has established all things. He is king. At the end of uh, the creation passage, when it says uh, God rested, it is not in the same sense as uh, we speak of rest after the service and this hearing the preaching. They're like, oh, I need some rest. No, that's not, that's not what it is. God rested is the idea of a, a king who has established his rule, and now he can reign in peace. It's a, it's a, it's a picture of God exercising his authority over his creation. And we are told that God made all things good by his own estimate, right? God saw and it was good over and over and over again. I tell my students that in my past life as teacher, it doesn't matter whether you think your paper is good, it is not good till I tell you it is good. <laughs> so... As true of God, uh, God is the only one who can truly look at his work and say it is good, and, uh, and we don't get to say what is good or not. You know? God determines what is good or not. That's why he instructed our first parents that they need to know the, what is good and what is evil from him, not independently. We'll come to Genesis 3 in just a minute. So God made all things, and God made all things good. The world was good uh, by, again, God's own estimate. Relationships were good. All creation uh, uh, lived in perfect harmony. May, uh, the, the first song in the Bible uh, is the song of the delight from man because God has brought to him the woman he had fashioned from his side. And he breaks out into song. Uh, uh, animals and humans live in perfect harmony. Uh, many of you prayed for my dogs. I think my dogs are the most prayed for dogs in the world. <laughs> uh, but, you know, pets, for me, pets are the... Uh, the closest we ever get to maybe what life looked like in Eden, where men and animals, humans and animals, lived in perfect harmony. You know, uh, yeah. In the fall, uh, you you see what uh, dogs are capable of. So the fall's always there. We'll get there. But uh, all relationships were good in the universe. Even work was good. Can you imagine that? Some people think work is the result of the fall. No. If you look at Genesis chapter two, we are told that uh, uh, there's nothing growing in the garden because there was no man to till the ground. So God creates man to work in the garden. We were created for work. How about that? Monday morning, remind ourselves, I'm created for work. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and work was good. 
by, by the work of his hands, uh, man did something with which God has created. So it's called the cultural mandate. God created and put man, as we're going to see in just a minute, as the vice region, so that God's glory would be extended throughout creation through the work of our hands. Uh, and work was good. And man had rest in the garden. There was uh, nothing that was challenging or troubling uh, in God's uh, perfect creation. And God, we, we can't get out of creation without looking at uh, God's, uh, the, uh, the God's creation of man as male and female. We read that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man. There's also the let us. Who's God speaking of? We'll talk about that next week when we talk about the story of God. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God he created him male and female he created them and God blessed them and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God commanded them, God blessed them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the face of the earth as image bearers. God intended his glory that was there in the garden through his image bearers to fill the face of the earth. So all earth will be filled with God's glory as God's image bearers went everywhere doing the work of God, whatever that God has called them to do. Uh, uh, and that's how God's, that was God's intent for creation. God, man, man as in male and female, together were image bearers. Man as male and female were vice regents. Uh, they were to exercise dominion and authority over creation as good rulers, not those who exploit and dominate and destroy. That's after the fall. But they were to govern as God would, as, uh, because the world over which they were appointed as wise regents was God's world. Uh, one of the commentators on uh, Genesis, he writes, you know, we, can't, we, we always need to live in constant awareness that you are living in somebody else's house. Uh, you know, as a, uh, someone who's renting a property, I know that. I was like, uh, do I want to hang a TV on the wall? No, it's somebody else's house. I can't put holes wherever I want to. Right? Uh, so we are vice regents, uh, but we are also priests. We are a kingdom of priests. We we represent God to the world and the world to God. Uh, we, are, we are created as prophets. We listen to God. We hear God. We understand what God says and we obey God. That's who we were made to be. The world was good. Everything that God made was good. That was Genesis 1 and 2, but Genesis 3 follows. In Genesis 3 we see the fall of man. See, man was created to find life in obedience to God. Obedience to God always brings life. But disobedience brings death. Man, who was to live in complete dependence on God, even the knowledge of good and evil needed to come from what God had to say, not for self-discovery. Uh, the, 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 the devil, in the person of the serpent, tempts them that maybe God's intent for them was good. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He turns them away from God's generosity. God had said of all the trees in the garden you may eat, but not of this one tree. He withheld one from them, but Satan turns it around. He says, God, 
Did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, he actually said you can eat of any tree in the garden, but don't eat of this one. Anytime we doubt God's goodness, uh, we have given a foothold to the enemy. And uh, instead of exercising dominion over the serpent, uh, they submit to the serpent's lies, and we still continue to do that. The peace, the flourishing, the shalom that was in the universe of Genesis 1 and 2 is shattered in Genesis 3. Disobedience to God destroys the world. The entire creation is placed under the, the curse because of our sin. Relationships are broken. Relationship with God is broken. We are separated from the source of life. Uh, we have, Adam and Eve hide from God as though that was possible. Um, relationships are broken. Man's creation with the man with relations with the rest of creation is broken. The, the work of his hands, which was supposed to produce fruit and honor God, becomes hard labor. That's why Monday morning is hard. The, word, the ground, instead of producing fruit, produces thorns and thistles. Uh, by the sweat of our brow, we till the ground and we still don't get the fruit that it's supposed to produce. Labor is painful. Man's relationship, uh, with the most intimate relationship of all, is broken. Uh, God said, on the day uh, uh, that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. That's what he said to Adam. And when God asks Adam, did you eat of the tree? Adam's answer was not, yes, Lord, I did it. No, he said, no, the woman you gave me. <laughs> she gave to me, and I, you know, it's her fault, and it's your fault. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was ready to throw Eve under the bus. This is the same guy who was singing at the end of chapter 2. Flesh of my flesh and bones of my bones. But now she shall surely die. And if that happens and he's let go, that would be good. Uh, but man is broken also within himself, right? He's hiding in shame. He's afraid. Uh, everything is broken. And, and the result is uh, death. Life is with God. To be separated from the life giver is, is death. Uh, man immediately dies spiritually, that is, in his relationship with God, and he begins to die physically as he loses access to the tree of life. Uh, some of you know that I'm a fan of uh, Lord of the Rings, and uh, Gollum is, uh, is, is a favorite character, but because he's such a tragic character, and in the movie there's a song called the Gollum Song, uh, and these are lines from that. And uh, for me, it perfectly describes the human condition after the fall. Where once was light, now darkness falls. Where once was love, love is no more. These tears we cry are falling rain for all the lies you told us, the hurt, the blame. And we will weep to be so alone. We are lost. We can never go home. So in the end, I will be what I will be. No loyal friend was ever there for me. That was Golem's song, but it doesn't have to be our song. <laughs> because God did, the God who made all things, he doesn't abandon his creation. He doesn't abandon the crown of his creation. He does not abandon the human race. And the redemption of God begins even in the garden where we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, in the midst of the curse, in uh, verse 16, God says this. He says, to the woman, I will surely, um, sorry, uh, in, in, in verse 15, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promises that, that he will put an end to this evil through the seed of the woman. And that seed of the woman is who the Apostle Paul will speak of, that at the right time God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God does not abandon his creation. This first gospel, as it is called in Genesis 3, 15 and 16, uh, is a promise that God will not let things Uh, Let the fall be the final word on creation. He will redeem that which he has made. Creation belongs to God, not to the devil. The world is God's world. The world that he created, good. Man only increases in evil. God said, be fruitful and multiply. And we became fruitful and and multiplied in our evil. So much so that in Genesis chapter 6, well, even before that in uh, you know, there's, we see the brother taking the life of a brother. Uh, we see that man is still being creative. Uh, the, the image of God is not lost. It is shattered, but it is not lost. Man still creates. He creates musical instruments. He, he builds cities. He makes agricultural implements. Only thing is, instead of all of this being to the glory of God, man does it for his own glory, in his own arrogance. And the evil only increases so much so that God looked down and saw that the the evil of men was great. Somebody once pointed out, that's the only thing that's said about us, that we are great. We are great in doing evil. And God brings about judgment. God who created all things, he's, uh, through the flood, puts an end to all things. Everything that has breath in its nostril died. Before that, in Genesis chapter 5, we have this genealogy. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then everything that has breath in his nostril died because of our evil. But God was not done because it was his creation. He spared the life of one man and his family, Noah and his family. God rescued him through the waters. And the same command that he gave to Adam, he gives to Noah in Genesis chapter uh, 9, in chapter 8, uh, verse 15 and, uh, and following. God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your do- uh, sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. God gives the same command. God blesses Noah. And just like Adam sinned in the garden, Noah sins in the vineyard. You know, somebody asked, uh, we don't know whether there's original sin or not. There is. But he says throughout the Bible, there's immediate sin. Every time that God does something good, man immediately does something evil. Adam and Eve did. Noah did. And as we read through the scriptures, we repeatedly do that. But God is not done with... uh, uh, the human race. The human race continues in his rebellion in Genesis 11. They will make their own way to God. Now, Golem's song at least tells we can't go back, but uh, let's fix it. Uh, you know, Bob the Builder song. I know Bob the Builder is no longer on TV, but our, my kids grew up listening. We can fix it. No, not our relationship with God. God has to. Uh, so, man wanted to do something great, but God puts an end to that project because in it, man, the only great thing that man can do is evil. But God comes to Abraham, Abram at that point, and he says, I will make your name great. 
so the focus narrows to this one man, Abram, with whom God makes a covenant in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, he says uh, to, to, to Abram, God called Abram, Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you hear the echo of be fruitful and multiply? Uh, through this man, God's blessing would extend to all the nation. God has not given up his plan for his glory to spread to the ends of the earth, to all nations. You hear those echoes in Matthew 28, Acts chapter 1? We don't evangelize because, not just because one day we can be heaven, in heaven, we evangelize because God intends for his glory to spread to the ends of the earth. He never gives up on that project in spite of our repeated uh, failures. And the story goes on. Uh, Israel, God's chosen people, uh, God redeems them uh, so that they may worship him and serve him. He brings them out of uh, Egypt, and what do they do? First thing they bring them, he brings them, he makes a covenant with them because they are his people, because they have, he has redeemed them. First they, thing they do is they start worshiping an idol. He makes a covenant with them, and the sons of Aaron offer this strange fire. Uh, there's room for interpretation on what the strange fire was. Uh, something they were just drunk and they did something inappropriate. Whatever it was, immediate sin, immediate sin. God does something good. God's people sin immediately, but God does not give up. Uh, the Israelites asked for a king. King itself is not bad. We saw Adam appointed as a vice regent, but Saul's not the king that God, God's chosen king for Israel, and he immediately fails. Uh, he, you know, he never trusted God. That's the difference between Saul and uh, David, is that David, even in his sin, ran to God. Uh, not so Saul. And we see David, and God makes a covenant with him in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Uh, that seed of Abraham would be a blessing, uh, would be a seed of David, through whom God will establish his rule uh, to the ends of the earth forever. David's a great king, but even a great king since. And we see him breaking uh, three commands of the Ten Commandments on the same day, coveting another man's wife, committing adultery, and committing murder, all worthy of death. Uh, but God does not forsake his own. David turns to God in confession and, and knows that he's only standing before God is because of God's mercy, and he pleads for God's mercy. God is merciful for him. God keeps his promise. God raises up Solomon, the wisest and wealthiest king there was, but even the wisest and wealthiest king commits idolatry to, to, to a great extent, and the kingdom breaks into two pieces, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Neither one is completely righteous. They, 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 they become evil. Instead of being a light to the nations, they become like the nations, and God sends them into exile. We see the northern kingdom taken away by the king of, king of Assyria into exile and the southern kingdom taken by the king of Babylon. It seems like it's the end of God's project. It began with Adam, continued through Noah, came through Abraham, uh, raising up Israel and David and Solomon. 
No, it's never, God's projects never end. God will fulfill what he intends to do. He will bring to completion uh, his purposes. So even as they are headed out to exile, God makes a promise through Jeremiah that there will be a new covenant. God will send the Messiah. God will pour out his Holy Spirit. God will raise the dead. God will bring Israel back from exile. So they have hope in exile. And they also know they went into exile not because the king of Assyria and king of Babylon were great, they were great, but they went into exile because their God disciplined them. God is true in his judgment. He had told them in obedience they will find life and flourishing in the land. In their disobedience, they will be sent into exile. Even as Adam was driven out from Eden, Israel is driven into exile, but God is not done. God brings his people back 70-some years later, but they're still, they don't see the flourishing that is promised to them. They're still under foreign oppression, and Jesus comes. Jesus comes as the beginning of the fulfillment of new covenant that God made with him. He makes that claim about himself. In his blood is the new covenant ratified. He comes as the fulfillment of God's promises. We don't understand Jesus if we don't know the Old Testament. He comes as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. God is able to work through a pagan king's census to fulfill his promise that his son will be born in the city of David. In Bethlehem. Uh, and and he, he, the only one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise, uh, is laid on a cattle shed. So that there is no one that is kept from coming to him. He lives the only perfect, obedient life that ever was lived. Adam failed. Noah failed. Abraham failed. Israel failed. David failed. Jesus did not. As Adam Adam sinned in the garden. Uh, Israel sinned in the wilderness. Jesus obeyed in the wilderness when the devil tempted him. Uh, uh, that's why Paul would write in Philippians, we had that series, he obeyed to the extent of death on a cross. That, you know, uh, whereas others fell short very easily, he stayed obedient even to death on the cross. He was crucified for our sins, but it's not because... Uh, his enemies shared the blame for putting him on the cross, but even in that, they were fulfilling God's purposes, that in what they thought was their victory, was God's victory over death, over sin, over the devil. God raises him from the dead on the third day as vindication that he was indeed who he claimed to be, the Lord of the universe, uh, the one who was the Son of God, the King of glory. God raises him from the dead on the third day. God exalts him to his right hand, and from there he reigns and he waits to return to renew all of creation. What the Old Testament anticipated as a one movement from God, where the Messiah will come and redeem and make all things new, we see in Jesus, it's a, it's a two-part redemption. In the first coming, he has accomplished it already on the cross, but the victory is consummated and all creation will be renewed it is in, at his return. It is, as a church, this is where we find ourselves between these two comings. This is, this is where we live now. Having experienced the redemption that has come from Jesus and awaiting the, the renewal that, will, that Jesus will bring when he comes. And when he comes, 
He will make all things new. What are we to do between the times? We live on mission. We are God's mission to the world. Jesus tells us, I think Pastor Ed reminded us last week in John chapter 20, uh, 2021, as the Father sent me, 19 actually, I send you. Even as the Father sent the Son to accomplish his salvation, the Son sends his people to proclaim that salvation. The salvation that Jesus accomplished is good for the ends of the earth. And that salvation is to be proclaimed by his people to the ends of the earth. So if we are, uh, that's the primary task for which the church is here. That's sermon number three. Uh, But here's the preview. If as a church, if that's not what we're doing, then we are not on mission. Uh, We are not, we don't have a, somebody said the church does not have a mission. The church is the mission. It is God's mission to the world. It is, and we, we, we accomplish this mission by proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the good news. All other lords are bad news. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, and he is already Lord, and when he returns, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But you and I are called to proclaim that lordship by our word and our life. Because it is through the church, God gives a foretaste of that kingdom that is to come in its fullness. When the world peeks into the church, it ought to see people of all kinds living together in perfect harmony because what unites us is not our economic status, not our education, not our race, uh, not our ethnicity. It's Jesus Christ. Why do these people, why are they together? Why do they love each other so much? It's because Jesus Christ is their Lord and what Jesus Christ has done for them, he will do for anyone and everyone who turns to them. That was the testimony of the early church. That was supposed to be the testimony of the church at all times. Uh, but does the church live out that witness? Does the, when the world looks in, does it see us as divided as the world out there? Jesus tells us in John chapter 17 that the world will know that he has come by our unity. That we are one in spite of all that divides us because we are one God, one Lord, one Spirit, one baptism. These that unite us are far greater than anything that divides us. And when the world sees us united, we have a testimony that Jesus Christ is Lord and what he's doing amongst us, he's going to do for all creation where there will be no more hostility, there will be no more uh, brokenness in this world. People will truly love one another. And finally, the fourth act of the story is the renewal of all creation. Just as the story of creation began in Genesis 1 and 2, the story of new creation is found in the last two chapters of the Bible, bookending that story. Creation will be renewed because that God, that is God's intent. All things will be new. There will once again be the shalom, uh, the, the human flourishing, the flourishing of all creation will be true. The world will be good. Relationships will no longer be in conflict and work will be good. Even now, for God's people, that good has already begun. Uh, we are told, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Because it is Him we serve. Whatever we do, we don't do it to please human masters because it is from the Lord we receive the reward. And when God makes all things new, once again, as He intended it to be, we see the kings of the earth bringing the work of their hands to Zion to present before the king. And even as uh, parents look at the work of their children's uh, art product, uh, projects, and say, how good, how beautiful, and they put it on the refrigerator. Uh, 
God will look at the works of this hand, our hands and, and celebrate, not because our works are good, but because He is good and He does it through us for His glory. That's what we are looking forward to, and that's what the church should give a foretaste of to this world. That's the four-part story, and that's the story in which we find ourselves as the church and which we, are going to find ourselves, which we find ourselves as individuals, as brothers and sisters in Christ. But what does that mean? Let's go to that uh, last side, slide there. The story of Scripture, there are another eight of them. I'll, I'll park mostly on number one and go through the rest quickly because uh, we will be looking at them in the weeks to come. The story of Scripture gives the context for every story, every passage, every verse of Scripture. Without the story of Scripture, we do not know how the promises of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus in the New Testament. We reduce the stories of the scripture into moralistic stories of how to be good, how to be courageous, and so on. Let's just take one example. I talked about the story of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is often reduced to, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is why our church is having a building project, you know. Uh, but the, the, the book of Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah is, is far more glorious than that purpose for which we use it. See, it's a story of God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promise that his Messiah would come to Jerusalem and the temple. His people are in exile in a foreign land. Jerusalem lies in ruins. The temple has been destroyed. How are God's promises going to be kept? God moves in the heart of a foreign king, Cyrus, who sends God's people back to their land to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild temples. So when you're reading Nehemiah, you should say, thank you, because... When Jesus comes, there will be a Jerusalem because it was rebuilt by Nehemiah. When Jesus comes, there will be a temple. God shows his faithfulness. Uh, uh, that's what Nehemiah is about. It, it points back to what God has promised. It points forward to what God is going to do. It's there. Or take another story, uh, the Gospel of Luke, where Luke tells us the story of these ten lepers that were healed. And nine go, and Jesus tells them, go, go and show yourself in the temple and... Uh, uh, he tells them, and nine of them go to the temple to show themselves to the priest to show that they're clean. One of them comes back to thank Jesus. And, and we say, oh, that's a story of gratitude. You know, we all need to be thankful. It's definitely that. But so much more than that. Jesus sent them to the temple, but one of them comes to Jesus. What is that story saying? What is the temple? The temple is where we experience the presence of God. That's where God, as he walked in the garden with his people, walked in the tabernacle, was present to his people in the tabernacle and in the temple. But now God was present to them in Jesus. And this one man clued in. And even today, we come to God in Jesus. And because we belong to Jesus, and because the Spirit of God dwells in us, we are the temple of God because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. We bring Jesus to the world. Because Jesus presents himself through us by his spirit. So there's so much more to every one of these stories when we, light, when we read them in light of the big story of the scripture. The fulfillment of uh, God's story, uh, the big picture, is something we all ought to know. Uh, parents, uh, don't just read Bible stories to children, but read them the big story of the Bible. There are a couple of uh, books we read with our children uh, one is called the, 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 the Jesus Storybook Bible, and the other one is called the Big Picture Story Bible. Both are fantastic uh, um, 
books that relate several uh, passages from Scripture to Jesus. Uh, for adults, uh, Juan Roberts' book called God's Big Picture is an excellent book. And the one that I mentioned before, The Drama of Scripture. These are excellent books that tie the, together the whole story of Scripture. Why is the story of Scripture important? Because it's ultimately the story of God. It's the only story through which God reveals who He is. That He is one God who eternally exists in three persons. Without the story of Scripture, we have a generic God of our own making. Said, we figure out, oh, you know, God ought to be all of this. If all these boxes check for somebody, that must be God. That's what the world has done. We know who God is because God has told us who He is through His Word, through that one story of creation, redemption, and renewal of all things. And that's going to be our next sermon. The story of Scripture tells the story of the church. It tells us what the church is, why it is here, uh, what is its future. Without the story of Scripture, the church becomes another social, cultural, political entity, even as we see today, sadly. We need that story of Scripture to reorient us as the people of God, called and sent out by God as His mission to the world. That will be our third sermon for the series. And then the story of Scripture is our story. Uh, Alistair McIntyre, a philosopher, he writes this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself a part. I can only answer the question, what, I am, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself a part. The story of Scripture is the script for our lives. It tells us who we are. It forms our identity. It tells us our destiny. It calls us to live as the people of God. If the story of Scripture doesn't form our lives, there are other narratives that seek to co-opt us into their story, and we become easy prey. Who we are and how we are to live as people formed by the story of Scripture, um, we ought to know that story. That will be the fourth sermon in this series. Several other things. Without the story of Scripture, the gospel gets reduced to uh, heaven someday for me. But the, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of all things made right before God, all things made new, the curse removed as far as it's found, joy to the world. In order to preach that full gospel, we need to know the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is what sends us a mission. Mission is first and foremost about who God is and what He has done in Jesus Christ. Without the good news of Jesus Christ, there is no mission. Everything we do is another do-gooder project. Mission is first and foremost theological. It points to God and what He has done for us in Christ and to call people to Christ by proclaiming Him as Lord. Uh, because Jesus Christ is Lord, and because the world belongs to God, and God redeem, is redeeming it in Jesus, we do good. Uh, we, we meet needs of people, uh, and we help people. The story of Scripture is the story of God's goodness. The world remains God's world. Uh, that means uh, there's good to be found, even as uh, uh, Sam Gamgee would tell Frodo, there's there's good to be found in this world, Frodo. He says, because the image of God, while it is shattered, still remains. Even in the most evil of people, if you look, you will see what remains of God's goodness. And in the most evil of people, in, 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 in people who, who, who are good, you will find evil because of the fall. Right? 
So that's, that's true as well. So everything we see in life, we ought to see of, in light of creation, all things made good by God, but we also see it in light of the fall, all things corrupted by sin. Story of scripture is the answer to the world's problem. Racism, injustice, poverty, war. Uh, only when we know the scriptures, we can diagnose correctly. And we also know what the answer to those problems are. You know, we don't listen to the world to find the answers to the world's problems. We speak to the world from God's word uh, about how these problems are to be solved. And we are at the forefront of solving that, whether uh, first and foremost in proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. But, and Christians have done that where, where there is uh, poverty. Uh, they have reached out and, uh, and helped people. Where there's lack of education, they build schools. Where there's health needs, they build hospitals. Why? Because God intends for his world to be good and he will make it good and we make that goodness known by how we live in this world. That, my brothers and sisters, is the story of scripture. This morning, if you're here or if you're joining us online uh, and if you're living from a different story, this morning, this good news of Jesus Christ, the story of God who creates, redeems, and makes all things new can be your story as well. If you believe this morning that God sent Jesus Christ to die for your sin and my sin, and God raised him from the dead. You have God's promise. The God who fulfills all his promises has promised that those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus will not be put to shame. When you stand before him, you will stand not as the sinner you are, but clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and you will be declared just because you have trusted in Jesus Christ. So I invite you this morning, put your trust in Jesus. Become part of this story. Become part of what God is doing in this world. And the Spirit leads you to trust in Christ today. Let us know. If you're here, join us in that Calvary Connect section. We'd love to talk to you. If you're online, email us. We would love to talk to you. Now pray with me. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this morning uh, that uh, we have a story to tell to the nations. A story that's our story, the story of the church, because it is your story, the God who made all things, the God who makes all things new. Help us, Lord, as people who live out that story and how we live as those who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And I pray, Father, that we will witness to his lordship to the ends of the earth, even as we have been sent out to do as a church in this city uh, and as your people around the world. May your name be honored and glorified and may your glory fill all the earth. We know it will because you will do it. We ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to Tell It From Calvary.